So I just wanted to um, uh, spend just a couple minutes to honor the dads, the fathers in this group, and um, bring a word of encouragement that you have the most amazing, incredible father to help you father your kids. His name is Jehovah Sabaoth. He is the most mighty, powerful general of the biggest army in the universe, and he's your daddy. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a stage in a boy's life. Um, at around age six, boys switch from having their mother be their primary source of comfort and encouragement, and she stays that way, but there's a huge shift to dad around the age of six. And they look to their fathers to show them what it looks like to be a man. At age four, there's actually a huge uh, a surge of testosterone that um, if you've ever parented a four-year-old boy, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it, it really describes the heroics and the activity and the risk-taking that goes off the charts. And dads are really important at that stage. But at age six, they will go all out to get their father's attention and time and investment. And um, Bob's and my stories are ones of recovery. We grew up with really broken fathers. And I think I'm really passionate about this because I know what it's like to have a father who is, uh, struggles. And if that's your story, I want to encourage you, just like that six-year-old boy, you have a father that you can lock into and get the attention and the supply and the encouragement that you need from a father heart. So I encourage you to climb up into your daddy's lap and let him parent you, let him reparent you and give you the guidebook to parent your sons and your daughters. I just came back from a week up in the Sierra Nevadas. I trained camp counselors at a sleepover camp, and I worked with the boy counselors for a few hours, and then I worked with the girl counselors. So I'd worked with these boys who are going to have a group of 10 to 12 kid boys in their cabins for two weeks, and um, one of the things we went over was, well, first of all, boys need... To, they need to know who's in charge, they need to know what the rules are, and they need to know that the rules are enforced. And um, otherwise, gang-like kind of mentality rises in the group, and some, some kid will become the gang leader, right? If they, they were looking for leaders, right? And um, so I was thinking about that and how much, and I just want to speak to the mothers and the wives and the sisters in the group, that your husbands... Um, um, it's great when he's in charge. Um, that's sometimes why they always want to take charge, <laughs> if you have that kind of marriage. But um, the other thing is that men need adventure. Boys need adventure. And they need a purpose. And they need to be successful at something. And I told the camp counselors, when your boys get really restless, you need to get an adventure going on. You need to go, let's go and do this. And I want to encourage you men, you need adventure. And you need a purpose. And you need to feel successful at what you're doing. And as you do that, your confidence will grow. And as wise, we need to encourage our husbands um, to get that adventure. When they get restless, 
to have some sort of adventure. And it needs to be something that the outcome, an activity where the outcome is not certain. The most incredible character is built at the vulnerable time when things are uncertain. And when you're at the brink of failure or digging deep and persevering through something. And our boys and our husbands and our fathers need that throughout their whole lives. It makes them alive. So, and that in those places of failure, and I want to speak to those places of failure in the men's hearts in this circle. Um, we've all felt that, that feeling of failure. And I want to tell you that very place where you felt like you failed is the very place where that's where faith was built. That's where courage was built. That's where you got a, a sense of destiny in your life. Now, I am so passionate about fathers and mothering because um, parenting did not come quickly for us or easily. It's an absolute miracle that we have children. And because of that failure, because of that heartache, because of those losses, I am even more passionate about family. So I want to tell you, those of you who felt like you've had a failure in your lives, that God is with you. You have an amazing father. He, he is, his name is Jehovah Jireh. He's a provider. And I want to just release a faith for inheritance over your families, that you have an inheritance to draw upon as a dad from a father who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He is the most wealthy, powerful, general, healing God for your families. So um, the male brain is very different than the female brain, and it's because of testosterone. Testosterone in the womb actually creates a denser right hemisphere of the brain, which cause men to be very singular in their approach to life. And it'll be like direct. I send my husband to the grocery store for peanut butter. He goes and he just gets, well, the first year of our marriage, <laughs> he would just go and get the whatever brand of peanut butter and bring it back. And I would go, why'd you get blah, blah, blah? You didn't get Jif. You didn't get Chunky. You didn't grab some jelly, too. What? Women think of all the whole picture, right? Men just go to the grocery store and get peanut butter. Didn't you remember we needed milk? So Bob would go into panic attacks on the way to the grocery store. And I would get these calls in the, in the produce aisle. What kind of strawberries was I supposed to get? And he'll t he attests to that. So, um, but the thing is, is that, the, the, that because of that, we need that. And um, sometimes when we're parenting our kids, I'm like, oh, they need this and they need this. And he comes in and just says they need this. And he's very singular. He solves the problem. And um, it's really great how marriages can work together in that way. Um, Bob was praying earlier, and he got a picture for the dads. And if it's okay if he could come up and share that. So, okay, come on up, Bob. Not about peanut butter. <laughs> um, no, I um, I got this two weeks ago, and um, you know I was worshiping, and and I was worn out, completely worn out. You know I I work a lot, and and I was worshiping, but I was spent, completely spent, and I feel like so many of us dads feel that way. Um, because we have to be supermen. We have to be able to work, be uh, loving to your spouse, 
perfect dad. You know, there's so many things that tug on us that make the bar set really high. And sometimes we just feel like we're not clearing it, you know? And uh, so that's a very personal thing. And I was just worshiping in a place of sweet surrender. And, and I got a picture of dads um, on, a, on a really rigorous hike. And if you're a dad that's worn out a little bit, um, this is for you. Um, but on a rigorous hike, and they were, we were all going up and down, and I was there with you, and, um, and it was just too much. It just felt too much. It felt like, I can't do this. I can't do this. And as we looked out onto the horizon, um, you got to a place where you thought the hike was finishing, and there was three more hills. And if you've ever experienced that in your life where you think, ah, I'm done, you know, and then there's three more hills, that can be pretty tough. That can be, if, you, if you've already spent all your energy on a hike and you still are not at the place you need to be at, it can be really hard. And um, I felt like it's at that moment where men they need an encounter with their heavenly father that's much greater than anything they could manufacture on their own. Um, and, I, and the picture I got was our heavenly father taking our face like we take a young child and he was just pulling me to him to get eye contact and said, I love you, Bob. I will always provide for you. I will do this with you. And, I, and his eyes were so strong on me. But the fact that he had to pull my, my face to it, because I'm not great at relieve, receiving love sometimes, he pulled it. He pulled it. And, you know, there's a general revelation of the Father's love in Scripture that's very apparent that we all know, oh, yeah, God loves me. It's good. It's on the back of bumper stickers. But there's a specific revelation when he pulls your face to you and he says, no, I died for you. I came for you and you alone, Bob. And I'm the one who's going to help you get over that hill. And that's what I, I pray. I pray that the encounter that you men who are here have know how deeply loved you really are. You really are. And um, as a father and right there with you, um, that's my prayer. That's my prayer. So, um, Would you guys just pray that over us? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Father, we just... The tenderness of a God who loves us is absolutely overwhelming. And Father, there are men in this room who need that touch in the deepest of places. And Father, I pray that you would pull their heads to you. It's not corny, it's the truth. And that you would set their eyes upon you and you would tell them personally through the power of the Holy Spirit that you love them and that you will provide for them and that it's not all about them, but it's all about you. In Jesus' name, amen. What a perfect segue. Um, 
I just feel like the, the Lord really just wants to touch hearts this morning. And he wants to do that by revealing the Father's heart. And that was just so on point. Wow. Um, so this morning, to just continue that posture, I'd like us to hone in on the mindset of a father by understanding the mindset of our Heavenly Father. And uh, a couple of things that, that uh, just came out as they were sharing. Um, fun, fun fact, I'm going to go home and watch golf today because <laughs> that blesses my soul. And, uh, and I understand that it's a boring sport to many of you, if not all of you, uh, but it's an amazing place of shalom in my spirit. <laughs> and one of the, the things you need to know is that the, the, the U.S. Open always ends on Father's Day. The, the national championship of golf ends on Father's Day. And uh, I grew up, my favorite golfer was a guy named Payne Stewart. He, uh, he won the U.S. Open in, in 1999 um, by, by a last final hole putt over Phil Mickelson. I know none of you care about that, but, but <laughs> here's, here's what happened, is that on that Father's Day, I'll never forget it, Payne Stewart, he wore, you know the old school knickers that some of the old, 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 old school guys would wear that you see in the pictures like in Scotland where they're like hitting things with wood and, uh, and, and, the, and the little funny hats and all that? So he would kind of, he would wear that. That was like his outfit. That was kind of his calling card. He'd wear like the tight socks with the knickers and then the, the old golf hat type of thing. And, and he, he, uh, he beats Phil Mickelson, who at that time, Phil Mickelson is still playing golf. He's, he's won every major championship except the U.S. Open. He's been second place six times. The first second place was there in 1999 to Payne Stewart. And, and Payne Stewart hits the final putt, and, and he pumps his fist, but he walks over to Phil because Phil's uh, wife was pregnant. He was actually thinking he was going to have to go to the hospital. And he holds him by the face, kind of like God is embracing us, as like Bob gave us that image. And he just, with tears streaming down his face, says, you're going to be a father. And, and the cameras caught that. I can't believe I'm getting emotional about a golf event. <laughs> Dang it. I get free license. Well, I get emotional a lot. But on this particular one, he dies in a plane accident in a matter of months later that same year. And, and so <laughs> every U.S. Open, um, I think about that. But um, Phil Mickelson has never won that U.S. Open. <laughs> He's had a lot of moments with his kids, and they tied back to that. But um, I'm sharing that because it's just a nice feel-good Father's Day. But it's also one that reminds me because it's this U.S. Open this year, it changes every year, but this year is at Pebble Beach, which is up on the Monterey Peninsula, 17-mile drive. It's just five hours from here. And uh, when I was in college, um, Sloan was, was very accurate in the whole adventure thing and the uncertainty need inside all of us. So I was on a missions project in Santa Cruz, California, and we would get bored sometimes in between sharing the love of Jesus. And a few of us decided, like, we can't afford to go play Pebble Beach. It's the most, um, it's, it's the most popular. It's actually a public golf course, but it costs like $500 to play for one person. And so we decided we were just going to go there and um, uh, buy some glow-in-the-dark golf balls from Kmart, because Kmart was still a store. And uh, we were going to sneak on at night and play the, the most revered golf course maybe in, in the, 
the United States. So we did, because we needed uncertainty, like if we were going to go to jail uh, and adventure, <laughs> and whether God would be pleased with us as missionaries sneaking on <laughs> golf courses. And so um, if you happen to watch the U.S. Open today, there's a par five, the sixth hole, and it's a beautiful hole that goes down kind of away. We kind of tried to get away from the clubhouses and where the people were. And uh, I, I took my glow at our golf ball, and I took a divot about the size of Rhode Island out of the middle of that fairway in the middle of the night. I felt really guilty about that. I tried to put it back, but I couldn't find all of it because it was pitch black. <laughs> and then we had some other golf balls we wrote some notes on for the grounds crew and teed off at 18, and, and, um, and it was super stupid, and we could have gotten uh, in a lot of trouble, but boys need adventure, I guess. Um, so happy Father's Day as you uh, <laughs> watch the U.S. Open. I wasn't planning to share that. Okay. That was just an aside. What I do want to share today, that, that uh, fun little photo, I, I want to do, uh, do this. As we get into the mindsets of fathers, I, I want to first mention the needs of, uh, of fathers. Let's see if I can shimmy that just like that. The needs of fathers. And then I want to talk about the five lies that fathers believe the social effect of fatherlessness, and then the, the things that, the mindset of what a father gives. A true father gives certain mindsets. And I'm going to kind of fly through those first several things because I, I want to land on the prodigal son and draw a couple things out of it. Um, because there's some things and truths hidden in there that I think are going to be foundational for how we continue to ask the Lord, what does a healthy family look like here in our own personal families as frontier, as a broader family, and in how we can transform society through the concept of family, starting with pieces like fathers. Pretty critical to make a family out of. Um, so the needs of a father. I found this from a secular um, Christian-hating magazine called the Huffington Post. <laughs> but they had some good things in it. Because I think they weren't, they weren't trying to combat Christians like they sometimes do. I actually love reading things from people that hate Christians, or at least are, are not maybe hate them, but are, are not necessarily aligned in many ways traditionally. They say, uh, this, this writer, Brittany Wong, had seven things I think she said. The first was this, um, seven things your husband, she's actually saying, isn't telling you as a wife that he needs. This is just for free here. Men want their wives to say, I love you. Good stuff. Number two, men want their space, especially after an argument. Can anyone attest to that? <laughs> Sometimes it's like, I'm not still mad at you. I just need you to get away from me. <laughs> Number three, which is, I think, appropriately put it, number three, after we want you to get away from you, is that men then want you to initiate sex. <laughs> this doesn't all have to be in the same, like, encounter. But if it is, that's fantastic. The, the fourth would be, um, so I mean, number three, men want you to initiate sex. I think women are in the posture of like, oh, they always want it. I want them to want me, and that's all great too. Men need to be pursuers, and that's, that's very true. But at the same time, men want to also feel wanted. I think sometimes that gets like shoved under the carpet, and, and they just are kind of looked at sometimes by society in general as those who just have a sex drive, and they don't need any kind of emotional connection. And they do. Isn't that true, guys? Yes. As awkward as it is for me to say sex and to look at you in the eye and say. <laughs> Number four. Done with the sex. Okay. <laughs> Number four, men want to be heard. 
Men want to be heard. You know, we, we are often told we need to start listening and not to just solve all of the wife's problems and to fix everything. I'll talk about that hopefully at some point, which is very true. When the, when the wife is sharing her heart, you want to fix it, men. Um, and they just want you to listen and to, to understand how they're feeling. But men also need to be heard, don't they? Amen. Number five, men want to be praised, appreciated, and validated. Number six, men want to be touched, believe it or not. And that doesn't have to just be sexual touch. They want to be touched. They want to know that you want to hold their hand, to get in close, that you feel safe with them, that you enjoy being close to them. And number seven, and I found this really interesting, um, men want to be respected. We know this, I think. Anyone taken the Love and Respect conference that was very popular in the last 10, 12 years or so? No? No one took the Love and Respect conference or familiar with it? Um, so there was, there was a, a book called Love and Respect. I think Sue and I went to it in Orange County when we lived um, in San Diego. And Emerson Egrix or something like that, I can't remember his full name. He says, he says this about, uh, about love and respect. Oh, here, I, got, I, got, I actually got some notes from it. He's referring to Ephesians um, 5, the whole concept of the book. Obviously, the Huffington Post was not referring to Ephesians 5. But if you, if you look at Ephesians 5, um, it's, that, it's that whole kind of like starts with a cringe, wives, submit to your husbands, and that whole thing that can be very like a little bit like tense in this day and age. What does that mean and to what degree? And we're not getting into that at the moment. But I am going to um, mention that it finishes in that, in that section saying, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then, and gave himself up for her. And then verse 33 says, However, let each of you, of each one of you, excuse me, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the summary of the whole section is the emphasis on the man, the husband, needing to emphasize the love, the sacrificial love for a, for a wife. And for the wife to emphasize the respect for a husband. It doesn't mean that the wife doesn't need respect and that the husband doesn't need love. But what it means is the deep part of a man needs to feel respect. Um, uh, Dr. Egrick says this, the, the theory is that the primary emotional needs for men and women respectively are that men need respect and women need love, like they need the air to breathe. And he uses some simple illustrations in real life situations and relationships that, that connect those situations to verses like in Ephesians. And then he talks about three cycles, the crazy cycle, the energizing cycle, and the rewarded cycle. The, the crazy cycle is, illustrates that without love, a woman reacts without respect, and without respect, he reacts without love. And the energizing cycle, he outlines the strategies for improving a relationship by showing that his love motivates her respect, and her respect motivates his love. And then the rewarded cycle is demonstrated by by the example in scripture that says his love blesses regardless of her respect and her respect blesses regardless of his love. Meaning this, that, that you are investing, even if you aren't getting out right now what you think you need, you will be rewarded if you start investing it without the exchange initially. Meaning that we both take the mindset that I'm going to love unconditionally. She's going to respect unconditionally and hopefully love too. There's going to be a rewarded cycle. Instead of the cycle that I withhold, she withholds, we're both deprived, and we both are just blaming, and that cycle of blame continues, right? So, so that's fun. <laughs> Respect, though. Men want to be respected. I find this amazing because all of these points, 
could totally be taken out of Scripture, and they, they are in Scripture, and yet these, these are just people observing society and what a husband needs. The, the second thing I want to highlight is lies that fathers often believe. Five lies that fathers often believe. And uh, Paul Manwaring up, uh, well, he's not at Bethel anymore. He's in the, he's in the UK. He's a wonderful British man. But uh, he says these five things that are lies that are often common for fathers. One is I can't be a good father because I don't have one myself. That's a lie. I think we want to go after that today. The quality of the son isn't determined by the quality of the father. Number two. Oh, this also tells us that parental models do not dictate our fatherly effectiveness. It's instead determined by the conditions of our heart. So number one, I can't be a good father because I don't have one myself. It's a lie. Number two. I can't father people who are more accomplished than I am. Anyone ever felt that? I felt that at times. I can't father people who are more accomplished than I am. Fathering is more than coaching. It's more than mentoring. It's more than teaching or training. It might involve all those things, but these roles, good as they are, focus on the task, the skill, or the job. The thing, fathering focuses on the person. Fathering is about championing people for who they are, what they do, and how they do it, but never valuing the skill over the relationship. It's always the relationship over the skill. And number three, the lie that I failed. And how do we combat that lie? That God is Redeemer. He delights in making beauty from ashes. And there can be no doubt that there are some lessons we only learn through defeat or mistakes. God wastes nothing and he gets you ready, which means that mistakes, errors, sin, experience, all if viewed correctly with the perspective of heaven are a source of wisdom and therefore grace. Number four, what if I, I don't have children? It's a lie, so I can't father. I don't have children. Neither did Jesus. End of story. <laughs> Yet he's called the everlasting father in Isaiah 9. Therefore, fathering is more than a biological process. It's an attitude. Number five, I can't meet the expectations of fatherhood. And I'm going to read a paragraph here because it's, it's, it's so good in closing the, the lies with this. If you feel that you can't meet expectations, just let this resonate. The time, that time, the object of time is important, but fathering isn't primarily about time. Provision is important, but fathering isn't primarily about provision. Both are ingredients, but first and foremost, fathering is about a heart connection. It's about love. There is also the dynamic of receiving someone as a father. In that sense, the heart position of a son or a daughter is absolutely essential. You can't father someone who doesn't want to be fathered. I've, of, I've often felt that my issue is that I am not posturing myself to be fathered, not that someone isn't willing to father me. So not all expectations placed upon fathers are healthy. Pain we carry in thinking from an orphan mindset will create unrealistic and demanding requirements that we expect from fathers. Truth be told, if our heart is to be fathered and we position ourselves like a son or a daughter with a soft heart of humility and teachability, then we can be fathered by anyone because everyone has something they are better at than we are. Therefore, we can learn something from everyone. And another way of saying this would be simply, sons or daughters recognize the glory in and on everyone, while orphans are absolutely unable to. Let me phrase it a little differently. Sons and daughters wear visors of honor through which they see the world. Orphans wear mirrored lenses where they can only see themselves. The only expectation rightfully wanted from a father is love. That love could take many different forms. Sons and daughters will understand that because of the state of their heart 
and place themselves to receive from that grace. That is why wisdom chooses many fathers. We can learn from multiple fathers. To think we will receive everything from an earthly father is to demand too much and be positioned to be disappointed. I've done that many times. Only one father fails to disappoint because only he is able to be father of all and father to all. It's our Heavenly Father, if you don't know who I'm referring to. So those are the lies, and that's how we combat the lies. I, I want to move on and keep moving on here that we have this social effect of fatherlessness, or the, what I call the societal value of fathers. And, and here I'm going to do kind of a, a, a typical thing where I'm going to give you a bunch of stats that's really depressing. You know how pastors do that at the beginning of sermons sometimes? <laughs> and then here's some Bible verses to help us combat that. Well, sometimes that's, that's uh, I think, relevant and helpful. Uh, we, we're living in a society right now that... Um, I think the posture of society's heart is, is really intentionally good right now to try to revise the need for correct molds of fathers and mothers and men and women in society. And I think in that, though, there has been an attack on understanding true masculinity and true femininity. And I think it's caused us to have kind of an identity crisis of sorts. And, there's, and it's also caused there to be kind of a numbing effect or kind of a washing out of, of the right distinctions of men and women because we've been highlighting the, the unhelpful areas that men and women have been divided on or the ways that, let's say, men have been holding women into slavery in many sometimes subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways throughout modern and past history. But the studies are very clear. 90% of American inmates are men. 75% of all inmates grew up without a father. Some say up to 90%. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 90% of, of homeless uh, kids are from fatherless homes. 85% of kids with behavior disorders come from fatherless homes. 80% of all rapes come from those who grew up in fatherless homes. 71% of high school dropouts, fatherless. So it's, it's pretty obvious that the lack of having a father, not even a good one, just, a, just someone that's actually in the home, is a pretty effective determinant to some pretty negative social outworkings. Okay, that's enough of the depressing part. Now let's talk about elephants, because they're life-giving. Uh, Chris Pallotton shared about uh, Wade Horn's story of the elephants and men. And in South Africa, we've got a lot of South African friends. Any South Africans here today? I don't think we have any South Africans. A couple of, uh, an Aussie, but, but uh, and Brits, but no South Africans. In Chicago, we, endless, I mean, we were sick of South Africans. There were so many in our church. Uh, but at Kruger National Park, they had this issue where the, the elephants were going extinct. And so what they did is they, they started breeding them. And then they overbred them. And then they were like, oh, man, we've got too many elephants. Let's move them to another park, which is super easy to move elephants. <laughs> so they, they developed these harnesses and took helicopters. I'm like, where do you get money for helicopters and harnesses? And I'm like, people love animals, so I'm sure that wasn't an issue. And the big male elephants were breaking the harnesses. So they're like, solution, we'll do the little guys. We'll do the, the young male elephants. So they brought the, the young male elephants over to the other park. Run along, gumbos. 
and they did. They're totally fine. They started killing everything, things that they weren't supposed to kill. The rhinos were all getting, they, what happened was they found rhinos like, with like holes in this, their sides and dead. And like, what's going on? They started, they put video um, recordings up and realized that these young males were acting like elephants don't act in the wild, which is elephants don't go after rhinos. They were going after other things too. The point was that these young male rhinos were killing and going after prey that elephants don't go after. And so it was messing up the ecosystem, and they're like, oh, what do we do? Develop stronger harnesses for the helicopters, because these, maybe if we put the big male elephants over there, they'll figure it out. And so they did. Within six weeks, the killing stopped. Simply by putting daddy elephants <laughs> to take care of the young male elephants. Isn't that insane? Insane. The power of fathers. This is what they said. Within weeks, the bizarre, violent behavior of the juvenile elephants stopped completely. The older elephants let them know that their behavior was not elephant-like at all. <laughs> In a short time, the younger elephants were following the older and more dominant bold elephants around while learning how to be elephants. I thought that was amazing. So what are the effects that we're now experiencing in a society of fatherlessness? And we have a unique dynamic. Societies have been fatherless before. You realize this. A fatherless society is not new. What do you think the society in America, for instance, was like in the Civil War where we lost uh, like over almost 700,000 men in a time where our population was much smaller? It took two generations to start to replenish and even get close to, to the same rate we were at. But this is the most fatherless generation in history where the result has nothing to do with wars. All those stats, all those depressing stats that we're not going to focus on and give too much attention to because we're going to give attention to what God is doing in and through us. But to be not ignorant of the realities that we live in, right? So how are we going to confront that? And the, the, the start of that is understanding that we're not the same, young and old, men and women, female and male. We need to embrace that. We also need to realize that certain societal, cultural distinctions of what being male or female are, are also wrong. The, the body of Jesus is meant to do both. Yeah. True fathers, true mothers, true sons and true daughters. Now, uh, a couple just fun points from, from Genesis that, that Valentin shared that I think is just fantastic, but just to make sure I'm not overemphasizing the men here. We all know those scriptures that, you know, it's, it's, not, suitable, I'm gonna, it's not good for man to be alone in Genesis, right? I'm gonna, God said, I'm going to make for him a suitable helper. Suitable helper. That word helper is uh, in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, 17 total times in the Old Testament, that word for, for, for helper, right? Women, you're my helper. How does that make you feel, babe? Uh, it's, it's, I'm your daughter. <laughs> Someone that's more offended than my wife at the moment. Anyone else? It, it's not the most, like, life-giving term. Like, hey, women, first thing we're going to talk to you about, you're the helper. Like, here's the man, you're the, you're the helper. And we can take something out of context 
And that's why I love studying the words and the phrases and, and the context and the, the life of the Holy Scriptures. Seventeen times that word is in Scripture, that helper word. Only two times does it refer to women. Fifteen times it refers to God Himself. So, in, in other words, it's saying that uh, God was, was, was saying that men don't need a slave. He was saying that we need someone that's like God to step in and stand alongside you. Context means everything. So when you hear helper, it's like I'm helping you to be like God next to you because you really need it. That's what that is saying. <laughs> and then the, uh, the, the suitable helper means this. Adam, Adam is obviously like he's put to sleep by God. God kind of breaks him. And when he comes to and, and he sees her, he says, I need you back. Let's get married. Let's be one. And the two should become one flesh. And then God doesn't count women as numbers after that because the two have merged and become one. It's an honoring of the man and woman relationship. And then Adam said, She's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his uh, wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He wasn't talking about moving out from the basement from mom and dad's place. He, he was prophetically declaring who will pursue who. That the man, that just like God is after you, that the man will be a cultivator, he will be a, a pursuer, that he was born to pursue things, he was born for adventure, and that that, that wife, that one flesh, is something that, that the man delights in pursuing. Right? If, if you want to get more... Uh, graphic, just read the song of Solomon. Okay. So the fear of culture has created a fear of defining masculine and feminine roles, and thus we passively struggle for role models. We need to recognize the unique place that fathers must bring to society and begin to demonstrate the redemptive nature that true fathers speak into, to the orphan spirit. When we do, mindsets shift, and identity and purpose is restored. So what are these mindsets that fathers bring? And I'm going to do this really quickly. Mindsets that fathers bring. So, these are kind of like highlights. I, I was, this was going back from notes from, from also stuff that I had taken notes from Paul Manwaring. But what I really want to go to is get to, to the prodigal son. And, and he lists off some things that fathers do, such as like, they like to fix things, like I mentioned before. They believe in their children. They show children the world. They help children discover what they love. They show them how to love their wives. They bless their families. They serve their families. They create culture. They create memories. They set standards. They give identity. They teach and model thankfulness. Are you getting tired, dads? You don't have to do all this tonight, you know, when you go home. I, I just want us to get a taste that the role of the father is not so black and white where we just go off, go to work, make sure there's a roof over our heads. What happens in crisis in families, like in movies, right? And when, when everything's kind of like going nuts and everyone's upset at dad and, and dad's like completely stressed, what does dad say? Don't I provide for you? Put a roof over your head, food on the table. When it comes down to it, when I'm, when I'm, I don't want to do this, but I know that when, it, when we're in survival, I'm just going to make sure you're safe, you're protected, and you're fed. And those, there is that kind of innate ability. If a man doesn't feel like there is that, that his family isn't safe, protected, covered, and so forth, 
he will be depressed. Well, or he'll really struggle with it. But I think equally as dangerous is for us to summate the man's, the, the father's role to just that. The father's role is so much more than that. And it's so much more exciting. And all of these things are, are birthed with an, an attitude and a heart's desire for adventure and life and to see the family thrive and to see your kids far surpass anything you did, to lay foundations for them to, to enter into the channels of the riverbanks that you dug and to be protected safe but to flow into their destinies and their promises and their life. Have you ever seen a dad that sees a child thrive and be like, oh, that sucks, they're going so much further than I did. They're so much better at their job than I was. They have so much more money than I have. They're so much taller than me, or whatever it is. It's like, said I never. Yeah, I don't have that problem. <laughs> I got little kids. That's all right. They take after their mother, which is good for them. All right. Prodigal son. We got to close this. We got to ministry. Open, open the Luke uh, 15 really fast. This will be hopefully pretty quick. I, I, I know we've taught on this story um, before. It's, it's, it's one that's just been blessing me, speaking to me, making me cry, rejoice, reflect, and go deeper and deeper and deeper. And uh, here's, here's, the, here's the thing. Prodigal son. Line one, and this is, again, Luke 15, verse, verse one. There was a man who had two sons. So it wasn't really about the prodigal son, it was about this man who was a father, and he had two sons. Do you know that the, that the father in this story never speaks to the son? You always want to pay attention to the direct quotes in any scripture. And the father never speaks to the son, to the, to the prodigal. He speaks to the older son, and he speaks to the servants, but never to the, never to the son. So he had two sons. And, and as you might know, I'm not going to read the whole thing, that uh, the younger son comes to him and he says, I want the share, my share that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them, which means what? The older brother at that point got things divided to him. So it sounds to me like they both got it at that point. The inheritance was already predetermined and they both knew what they had. Then the younger son gathered everything, went off, and he spent it all on... Uh, on, on, on booze and girls. And then he finds himself eating with the pigs, and he says, this is terrible, and it sucks. So I can't, he came to himself, and he says, my father's hired servants. The slaves have more than enough. I'm an idiot. I should go be a slave. He went back, and he starts to rehearse his speech. And he, and he does this in verse 18. Any of you kind of like rehearse the speech to your dad? When you screw up? You wreck a car? You spent $1,000 on your phone bill calling your girlfriend in New Zealand. I never did that more than once. <laughs> Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I'm no longer worthy. I'll just be your slave. What's he learned from his experience of his inheritance at this point? <sighs> I suck. I'll just be a slave. And he goes, and we know that the imagery is that the, the father sees him from a ways off, probably continually looking. And while he's still a long way off, the father saw him, felt compassion, 
ran and embraced him and kissed him, which is a completely going against all the societal okays. It's not okay to do that. It's not okay to lift up your, your man garments. It's not okay to sprint. It's not okay to run. It's not okay to go kiss your son in front of everybody. It was completely inappropriate, and he did not care. So he starts the rehearsed speech. Remember it? Father, I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father cuts him off before he can declare his slavery to his, son, to his father. Remember, treat me as one of your hired servants. He never gets to that point in his speech to dad. Because dad stops him, turns to the servants and says, bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. Shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. And they began to celebrate. He restores to him his inheritance. He tells him that regardless of what he's lost, he's got the ring, he's got the robe, he's got the position, and he's got the celebration. He's got everyone coming over. He's not embarrassed from, about him. He's not hiding him. He's not putting him in a recovery program until it's okay to present him back to society. He's got that priceless coat on top of his dirty, pig-infested body with the ring. And what the point of the story is, is not even this younger brother. It's not even really fully the father. It's the older brother who already had the inheritance. And he comes back and he sees what's happened. And he finds out that there's a fattened calf. And he says to the father who comes out because he refuses to go into the party. And the, the older brother says, look, these many years I've served you. My slavery to you. I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. I don't know who eats goats, but that's disgusting. I mean, he's basically saying, like, you never even gave me the disgusting meat. But when his son came, he's devoured your property with prostitutes and killed the fattened calf. And you celebrate him, and he said to him, this is the only thing the father said. Remember, he doesn't speak to the younger brother. The younger brother, he just has to put the ring and the coat on and present him to society. His actions spoke to the younger brother. But he, hear the words of the father to the older brother. Son, reminding him his identity and who he is, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. In other words, it's already yours. We saw at the start, he'd already given it to him. He'd already even shown him what it was. And he's reminding him he already has access to everything. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And he's telling him, what do we celebrate? What do we celebrate? We celebrate redemption. Just a few things that I want us to highlight. What is this father like? What is this mindset of this father? First, this father does provide for his family. You know, oftentimes organizations, when they're not led by fathers, um, when they're led by the spirit of the older brother, what's the older brother's mentality? 
You earn it. And everybody else has to earn it. And when you do that, there's corruption. There's not a sense of a father caring for those who haven't earned it or haven't reached their potential. Because when you operate as the older brother, it doesn't matter what someone's potential is, it matters what they do. When you start to take on the role of a father over even like a corporation, you start to value people for their potential, not for just their action. Obviously, actions are important. Uh, I've shared this story before, but... um, it's one of my favorites. There's, there was this guy, Bob Chapman, who ran a manufacturing company in the Midwest called Barry Waymiller. And when the, the 2008 um, economy hit, 30% of their orders overnight were shot. And so they needed to save $10 million. And the board got together and they're like, we've got to lay people off. And, and Bob basically said this. They came together and found a solution. He's like, no, we're not letting anybody go. Here's what we're going to do we're going to mandate that everybody in the company takes four unpaid weeks of vacation. And he told the company why they were doing this. And he said, it's because I want want all of you to be provided for. I'm trusting that this is going to be something where all of us come together and sacrifice a little bit together so that, that the overall good for the family of this company is intact. And you know what people started doing? The execs that could take five, six, seven weeks off with no pay traded with those who could only afford to take one, two, or three weeks off. They saved 20 million as a company instead of 10 million and actually profited off their crisis because a leader treated the company as a father instead of an older brother. What are the places in your life that you need to take the posture of a father instead of the older brother? Both the older and younger brother missed the father. One, because he was still a slave and was unworthy. And one, because he was entitled. Both slavery and entitlement will cause you to miss the father. It will cause you to miss what it means to be a true son or a true daughter to a good father. There's some in the room that are really good at being good kids. And then when things don't work out, you're... you're, your frustration with God is like, I did all the things you said to do. I, I, was, I, was, I was faithful and blah, blah, blah. You can, you can rattle off your list of reasons, right? You can be the older brother in a second. And then there's those where it's just like, yeah, here's, you know, you should have seen me a few years ago. I mean, I'm okay now in the way that I live my life, but I'm really just, I'm picking the fruit of the garden I planted, bro. <laughs> I was a mess and I deserve everything I'm walking in. And they have no hope for their future, and they don't really expect God to do anything because they feel like they need the punishment. And the good father is saying, I'm always with you. Whether you've been with me the whole time, and you think that what I have that's yours is because you've earned it, which is a lie, or you think that you can no longer have what's mine given to you because you've spoiled it, it's also a lie. Because true inheritance isn't about money and wealth. It's about taking on the heart, of the, father, the heart of that father. It's about taking on the identity of that father. Which son got the identity? We don't know. It doesn't say. Who's getting closer? The faithful son? No. He's further from stepping into his identity than the one who spoiled it. And that's the gospel It's the gospel of Jesus, redemption. He redeems things that were dead to life. 